Psalm 102. I hope you have enjoyed the series. We're still not through by a long shot, but uh, going through the Psalms like this forces us to uh, take a good long look at a lot of the Psalms that are not all that familiar to us, and I think the one we're looking at tonight sort of falls into that category. Psalm 102 is not one that you're likely to say, oh yeah, that's my favorite psalm. But it's a very interesting psalm, as we will see. Very important, I think, as uh, we think of how it is quoted in the New Testament. So uh, as we're reading through it tonight, sort of be thinking ahead, dealing with that issue. Psalm 102. You notice the uh, inscription says, It is a prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed and poureth out his complaint before the Lord. Well, it is certainly that. Now, these inscriptions were not inspired. They were added at a later date. But uh, certainly this catches the flavor, at least of the first half, of this psalm. Psalm 102, let's start reading in verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come unto thee. Hide not thy face from me in the day when I am in trouble. Incline thine ear unto me. In the day when I call, answer me speedily. For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned like a hearth. My heart is smitten and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. Now, just speaking personally, I told my wife, if I ever get so sick, I lose my appetite, get me to the hospital. I'm dying. Well, notice what the psalmist is saying here. This is so bad, I forget to eat my bread. By reason of the voice of my groaning, my bones cleave to my skin. I'm like a pelican. Perhaps a better translation would be a screech owl of the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert. I watch and am like a sparrow along, alone upon the housetop. Mine enemies reproach me all the day, and they that are mad against me are sworn against me. For I have eaten ashes like bread, and have mingled my drink with weeping. Because of thine indignation and thy wrath, thou hast lifted me up and cast me down. My days are like a shadow that declineth, and I am withered like grass. Now here is where the tone of the psalm changes. And in what we have just read, if you're thinking you're having a bad day, think about the way this guy is describing his life. But here in verse 12, again we find that interesting word, but, B-U-T, changes the whole mood. But thou, O Lord shalt endure forever, and thy remembrance unto all generations. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion. For the time to favor her, yea, the set time is come. For thy servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. So the heathen shall fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth shall glory. When the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. He will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. This shall be written for the generation to come, and the people who shall be created shall praise the Lord. For he hath looked down from the height of his sanctuary 
From heaven did the Lord behold the earth, to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to loose those that are appointed to death, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem, when the people are gathered together in the kingdoms to serve the Lord. He weakened my strength in the way, he shortened my days. I said, O my God, take me not away in the midst of my days. Thy years are throughout all generations. Of old hast thou laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. Like a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. The children of thy servant shall continue, and their seed shall be established before thee. Well, it is the prayer of the afflicted. Uh, here is one pouring out his complaint, his situation to God. And when you listen to it, it sounds like someone who is wasting away uh, with a terrible disease. Someone who has cancer, perhaps, and they're just wasting away very slowly. But uh, on closer inspection, I think that what we ought to realize is what's going on in this psalm is not so much a cry of affliction for an individual person, but that we're dealing with the cry of the nation of Israel who is in distress. In other words, Israel's situation is being likened to someone undergoing a very serious ailment, a life-threatening situation. And so, I think the psalm certainly fits the situation of Israel during the Babylonian captivity. Many of the psalms that we've looked at here lately fit that time frame. I think this one does as well. Uh, You'll notice in verse 13... He says, Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion. The time to favor her, the set time is come. Sort of gives you an idea that there's a time coming when God's favor will be once again be bestowed upon Zion. Notice verse 16, When the Lord shall build up Zion. The idea is Zion's been destroyed. Zion's being torn down. Um, This is the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. That would be the time frame. And so here is someone in the midst of the captivity uh, pouring out his heart to God that uh, God would hear his cry and deliver his people. So first of all, let's look at this thing as we see sort of fits itself into two halves. The first half is found in verses 1 through 11. And it's the condition of Israel in the captivity described. And again, it's being described as if it's a person And the person has a terrible disease, is terribly sick. Notice in verse 2, it is a time when God's face is hidden. Now there's a sense in which God is always present. We talk about the omnipresence of God. Paul spoke to the pagans on Mars Hill saying, God is never far from any of us. In Him we live and have our being." But there's certainly a sense in which there are times in our lives that it seems like God has abandoned us. I hope that none of you have experienced that, but I suspect all of you probably have. A time when it seems that God has turned His back on you. He is not hearing your cry. He is not heeding your voice. He has washed His hands of you. And notice in verse 2, that is exactly how the psalmist feels. And certainly Israel during the Babylonian captivity felt that way. 
God had taken away their glory, taken away their city, their nation, their temple, and they are prisoners in a faraway land. Notice in verse 3, the likening of his days to smoke and his burns being burned in a hearth. Um, we, we sometimes say as a figure of speech that it's gone up in smoke. And that's the idea here, is that my days have been turned into smoke. My life is like you put my bones in a fire and burn them, uh, like you'd burn a log. I'm being consumed by the anger, the wrath of God Almighty. Verse 4, notice it is a day of inner agitation. Not only is he physically in agony, but the heart is smitten and withered like grass to the extent that he has lost his appetite for life and uh, the severity of it all. And then finally, verse 5, this is what sounds like a disease. He's wasting down to, we say, skin and bones. Skin cleaving to his bones. All his fatness is gone. He is barely alive. And so in this uh, first five verses, we see the lowliest state of Israel being illustrated, as I said, like someone with a disease. But notice that the situation is even aggravated uh, by his social situation. And starting in verse 6, we see a description of that. It is, ver- it is a time of loneliness, the idea of being a pelican of the wilderness. Now, I saw some pelicans. Of all things, there, was, um, there is an old ancient lake bed north of the Sea of Galilee that is a place they have turned it's it's now drained if you look on some of your bible maps you will see that north of the sea of galilee there's a small lake and that lake has now been drained and dried up but it's been turned into a bird refuge and as we pass by that there were pelicans of all things pelicans all over the ground they're they're out there i think i showed a slide of that uh, this past sunday now, the last place on earth you expect to see a pelican, but here they were, uh, thousands of them. But notice the last place you would expect to see a pelican is out in the wilderness, out in the desert. Uh, why? Because pelicans eat fish. <laughs> They're going to be close to water. That's where their food supply is. And so notice the idea of being completely isolated and cut off. Verse 7, I'm like a sparrow. Some have suggested a better translation. Keep in mind that the King James translators didn't know what all of these animals were. They did the best they could do. Um, And we have a little better knowledge today about some of what these things represent. And some have suggested the blue thrush is actually what is being referenced here instead of a sparrow. Because sparrow, you don't generally see solitary sparrows, do you? They're in blocks. I guess you call them blocks. What do you call Bunches. Whatever, yeah. What do you call it? A gaggle. A gaggle of sparrows, okay? Uh, but notice here, there's a solitary sparrow, a solitary bird up on top of the house. And so the, the idea of isolation, the idea of loneliness, that I've been cut off, I've been left to myself. And notice the solitary bird up on the house becomes a target. And notice that he becomes a target. Verse 8, his enemies reproach him. All the day long. They that are mad against me are sworn against me. The, the, the translation here doesn't do quite justice to the Hebrew. It's that they swear by me. 
when you swear by something, what, what are you doing? Well, you're invoking their name as a byword, as a curse word. Uh, in other words, you're using your very name as an insult. Um, and, and so the idea is, is that we have been turned into a byword by, by our enemies. I'm not getting that across probably the force it should be, but how would you like to find out that your name is being used as a cuss word by your enemies? Uh, they use it as a slander, as a term of insult. And then notice verse 8. You're familiar with the term of sackcloth and ashes? Notice he says, I've eaten ashes like bread. That's a lot of ashes. That's pouring ashes and ashes upon your head. And then notice, I mingle my drink. Typically, when they drank wine in biblical days, you didn't drink it straight up. You didn't drink it without being diluted. Usually, they would pour water into the wine to mix it at least 50-50. Sometimes, they would cut it even stronger than that. And most of the time, it's going to affect your kidneys a lot sooner. It's going to affect your... No. Yeah. It's going to affect your kidneys a lot faster. It's going to affect your brain. In other words, it's going to be hard to get drunk on it because there's so much water in it. It's making rackets. Might be batteries. Okay. Why does it always go out when I'm up here? I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) We'll, We'll straighten it out. In the meanwhile, notice he says, I have mingled my drink with my weeping, that my tears have become what I've mixed my drink with. Okay, so you get the idea that here is a someone undergoing intense sorrow, mingling ashes for their food, mixing their wine with their own tears. Instead of water, they're cutting their wine with their own tears. And then notice in verse 10, it's all because of your indignation and your wrath, because our God is angry with us. And I... I find this very interesting. You have lifted me up and cast me down. A lot of how bad it's going to hurt when you hit the ground depends on from how high you fall. And notice in this case, Israel has been exalted. They've been lifted up. Would you say that's true? They have been singled out from mankind to be the nation where God places His name, where He has revealed Himself, sent His words, sent His prophets. They have been given special privileges that other nations were not given. They were exalted, but now from that high estate they have fallen. And so there's the old saying, better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Is that true? Let's suppose you, uh, there's a lottery, right? So it seems I saw that on the news today about what, $500 million? Yeah, let's suppose that you win, now not that anybody goes, your chances of winning the lottery are about the same as getting hit by a meteor, but, uh, <laughs> um, suppose you had that kind of wealth suddenly dumped in your lap. And you, isn't it, isn't it easy to adjust to lots of money? You know, nobody has a problem adjusting to more. 
But then let's suppose that suddenly after you've got accustomed to having that kind of wealth, you lose it all. And you might well say it would have been better for me that I had never known riches in the first place than to have had them and lose them. Because now, I mean, you know, poor folks, they, they never know what it's like to lose, to have nothing. They've, they have nothing all the time, but to have had it and then to have lost it. And that's exactly what's being described here. We have been exalted as a people, as a nation, and yet now from that highest state we have fallen into abject poverty, into, uh, in, into enslavement. We are the servants of the heathen Babylonians. We're their slaves. We, they have taken everything we had away from us. And so we have fallen and we have fallen hard from our lofty status. And so, verse 11, My days are like a shadow that declineth. To say your days are like a shadow is bad enough. A shadow is insubstantial. There's nothing to it. But notice that this isn't just any shadow. This is a shadow that's vanishing. This is a shadow that's passing away. In other words, I'm just slowly ebbing away. I am withered like grass. The grass, when it's freshly cut, still is green, still shows the semblance of life. But after a while, that cut grass begins to wither and fade. And so notice the description that fits very well the situation of Israel in the Babylonian captivity. They had it. They were exalted. They have lost everything. And so it looks like their life is just slowly ebbing away. We would ask ourselves, how many of those Israelites enslaved to the Babylonians ever expected to come home? In fact, we learned that when the news came that King Cyrus had allowed them to go back to their homeland, they said it was like they had awakened from a dream. They just couldn't believe it. Because it would seem that their days as a nation, as God's people, was over. It seems that the gods of the Babylonians have triumphed. And yet notice there's something still to come. The whole tone changes here in verse 12 because the viewpoint switches from their situation to their God. Notice the description here of the future hope and the future deliverance of Zion that is now being described, starting here in verse 12 down through verse 22. I'm having to go pretty fast through this. It's a long psalm, uh, 28 verses. So I want you to get just the flow of it, and there's a lot of stuff I'm going to sort of have to hurry over. Notice, as opposed to the fact that they are passing away, notice the shadow declining, the cut grass withering away. Here is God who is not changing at all the unchangeable God, the steadfast God, the God who is immovable and immutable. When we say the immutability of God, we mean that God not only does not change, we mean He cannot change. That there is absolutely no changeable, no no mutability with God Almighty. He is forever. He endures forever. And notice their hope in verse 13 and 14 is that God will yet arise and show favor to them when the time comes. Notice the set time. We think that God works in the nick of time. The truth is God works in the fullness of time. He already knows when He's going to do and what He's going to do. He's not in a hurry. Now, we'd like for Him to get in a hurry. 
You know, I want him to deliver me and I want it to be now. (laughs) Don't wait another minute. But in God's purpose, he has everything happening on a time frame, on a timetable. We remember the book of Daniel, that Daniel studying the prophecies of Jeremiah saw that God had said they would be in captivity for 70 years. Well, Daniel begins to add up two and two and comes up with the fact that, hey, we've been here about 70 years. It must be getting near. So he begins to pray that God will deliver them. And certainly, right on time, just as God had said, he delivers them from their captivity. Notice verse 14, your servants will take pleasure in your dirt, in your stones. In other words, they'll go back to their their homeland. And uh, verse 15, this will be a time where the nations see and fear uh, God's uh, name and, and his glory. Uh, Verse 16, when he builds up Zion, uh, he will appear in his glory. I want to ask you, as we go through this, do you see anything here pointing to the Messiah? Anything messianic in this psalm? I just want you to look at that phrase in verse 16. When the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. There is a sense, and we see it in the book of Isaiah, in the prophecies of Isaiah, that God is going to appear. God is coming. He says there's a, this fellow out in the wilderness preparing a highway in the desert, a highway for our God, and the glory of the Lord shall appear, and all flesh shall see it together. Now that fellow out there building a highway in the desert, who is it? It's John the Baptist. Is he a literal highway engineer? Is he out there with a shovel and a pick building a road? No. But he is making a way. He is preparing a people for the appearance of the Messiah. And notice he's preparing the way and the glory of the Lord shall appear and all flesh shall see it together. In other words, God is going to manifest his glory in this person that he is sending for whom John the Baptist is preparing the way. And that's the backdrop of the New Testament, and that is what John the Apostle means when he says the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. God has sent His glory in the person of His Son and has displayed and manifested His glory to us in the person of the Messiah. So as we read this, we're going to see in a minute, this is unmistakably a Messianic psalm. It is talking about the times of Messiah that are coming. We'll see that in just a minute. In other words, I guess I'm saying, trust me on this right now. I'll prove it to you in just a minute. Notice verse 17. In that day, remember back earlier, he is crying that God would incline his ear to his prayer. He's calling on God to hear him. to incline your ears like your dog out in the backyard. You know, he hears something, and up comes that ear and sort of wheels around and zooms in on the sound. Notice that the cry is that God's not hearing us. God's turned his back on us. But now, verse 17, he will regard the prayer of the destitute. He'll not despise their prayers. And verse 18 is interesting, that this is being written, this psalm is being written for the benefit of a people who are not yet born yet, they haven't yet come, a people who shall be created shall praise the Lord. I think he's talking about us. He's talking about New Testament believers. This people out here in the future 
who don't even exist in his day, but these people are going to be the people of the Lord. Verse 19, why? Because he's looked down from the height of his sanctuary. From heaven did the Lord behold the earth, and he heard the groaning and he, of the prisoner, and he's loosing those who are appointed to death. God has taken note of the condition of his people. They're in prison. They're in bondage. He will free them. They're in a state of death. He will raise them out of it. Do I even have to go to New Testament Scripture to show you how often that theme? We stood in the synagogue at Nazareth. I still, it's one of those places. There were a few places that just got to me, and that was one of them. The old city of Nazareth goes down the side of the Nazareth Ridge, it's called, And in that old city of Nazareth, there's a synagogue that's been there for 2,000 years. The building itself may or may not be the original. could have been built by the Byzantines or the Crusaders. The floor is the floor Jesus stood on in Luke 4. Let me read it to you. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, listen to this, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty to them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat out. And the eyes of all that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. In that spot, Jesus declares himself to his hometown to be the Messiah, to be the fulfillment of this prophecy. And what is the Messiah going to do? He's going to preach deliverance to the captives. The idea of of death a little earlier in Luke chapter 1 in the song of Zacharias, the prophecy, that's the father of John the Baptist, you remember. We see the fact that this one is going to be preparing the way for another, I'm, I'm looking down here to see if I can find it, and I may not find it. I didn't go far enough. You've raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world begun, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant, Unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Let me skip down. To give light to them who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's the prophecy of John the Baptist, father of the coming Messiah. That he will fulfill these types of things. Let's go back to Psalm 102. The Lord looked down from heaven. What did he see? Well, first of all, what did he hear? He heard the groaning 
of his prisoners. He's going to set them free. He saw those who were appointed to death. He's going to free them from that death. He's going to declare his name. Oh, my. He's going to make his name known. Do you remember the high priestly prayer Jesus prayed before going to the cross in John 17? I have manifested thy name to these, these men that you've gave me. I've manifested your name to them. We see in the triumphant entry the people saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, what is the name of the Lord? It's the character, it's the attributes of God. And they are being displayed in the coming of this person. Oh me, I wish I could camp out here a little while, but I better go on. And then notice verse 22, there's going to be this people who are gathered I can't pass it up. He's a gatherer. He's a a seeker. The lost sheep. He leaves. He goes and finds the lost sheep. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Them also must I bring, that there be one fold and one shepherd. He's He's not just a caller. I mentioned little Bo Peep Sunday. Doesn't work, folks. They're not coming back. You're going to have to go fetch them. You're going to have to go get them. So he did. Them also I must bring that there be one fold and one shepherd. He is the good shepherd who gathers his sheep around himself. And so notice the prophecies of what is coming. How did you, Just notice the contrast between the first half, the first 11 verses, and now the second 11 verses, where he fixes his gaze on God. Here's my present situation, but here is what is coming. Here is what God is going to do for his people. And now we come to the conclusion of the psalm, starting in verse 23. And basically, the clock may run out on me. My days are short. I may not live that long. But God, there's nothing going to happen to Him. There is a contrast here between the transitness of man. Um, Some of you young folks, you don't realize this yet because mortality has not dawned on you yet. Some of us have been afflicted with a big case of mortality. (laughs) We are waxing old. We realize that we are not the same as we used to be. I was just joking with Dave before we started tonight that every day, every morning is an adventure. What part of me is not going to work today? Used to, when I was 20, I didn't worry about such things. You just you just live. But now you are impressed. My daughter was just telling me about a lady she works with, her boss there, whose uh, brother just died at the ripe old age of 45. Went into the hospital for pneumonia, never came out. Over and over again, I'm hearing of people younger than me passing away. It is a stark reminder that my days are numbered. I'm not going to live forever. But over against my transientness is the fact that I have a God who is eternal, who is everlasting. And the the idea here is that the psalmist is basically saying, give me your life. Give me some of that everlasting life. You see, man is not immortal in himself. Our immortality, our living forever and ever and ever comes from the fact that we have a God who will supply us with life, 
with His life forever and ever. Am I saying, it's not that our batteries won't run down, it's that we've got a constant God who recharges our batteries. It's not that God gives us eternal life as a lump sum. You know, I go and I believe on Jesus and God gives me eternal life and I got it right here, stuck it in my pocket and I got me something right here, I'll never run out. But that God gives me an extension cord. That I am joined to Him and that He is the ever-living source of my life. That's the picture you have of heaven, by the way, at the end of the book of Revelation. That they, they live forever in this place because there's this thing called a river of life. The water of life is always flowing. And the tree of life is there. And the fruit is there for the healing of the nations. In other words, it's not that you have life in yourself that's going to last forever and ever. But it's like that the God whom you worship is a God who will give you life forever and ever. You see the difference. And so notice here in the closing verses of this psalm, there's this contrast between the fact that I'm not going to last very long. The clock is running out on me. But my God is forever and ever. He is absolutely immortal, unchangeable. He is from everlasting to everlasting. Notice, He is the Creator. Verse 25. There's two classes of, of beings in our universe. There's the maker and the made. There's the creator and there's the creature. Now, which are you? Well, you're the thing made. You are the product of the works of the hands of God. You're not the creator. You're the creature. Well, how many creators are there? How many are in that other class? Creator, maker, just one. God Almighty. Now, think through this. How many in that class? How many creators can you have? How how many creators can you have of everything? Just one. Right? Logically? Because if this creator makes some things and another creator makes a few other things, then you have no creator that made everything. Which class does Jesus belong to? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. How many things? All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made. Do you see the class that John the Apostle is placing Jesus into? The Creator class. Do you realize the verses that we're reading here at the end of this psalm, starting in verse 25, are quoted in Hebrews 1 and applied to Jesus? The Jehovah's Witness tell us that Jesus isn't really God. He's a little God. He's, he's not quite the big one. He's not Jehovah God. That's why they call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses. They're witnesses to the real God. Jesus is a sub-God. He's, he's bigger than you and me. He's, he's the first created being of the universe. He is the highest cre- creation, but He is not God, they say. 
But I want you to look back over this psalm, and if you're reading out of the King James, they did us a favor by putting the word Lord in little capitals. And what that indicates is when you see the word Lord in little caps, that it's translating the Hebrew word Yahweh, Jehovah. The God that is being spoken of throughout this psalm is none other than Jehovah. And here in these last verses from verse 25 down through verse 27, those verses are quoted in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. I don't know if we need to turn over there or not. I hope you remember from our study of Hebrews that there were seven Old Testament passages quoted and applied to Jesus. And this is the last one that clearly identifies Jesus as Jehovah God. He is not some sub-God, some little God, some lesser God. He is the Creator God, the one who made everything. This, this not only tells us that, John the Apostle tells us that in chapter 1. Notice, He is the Maker, the creation may wax old. The creation is changing. The creation is running down. The creation is getting old. The Creator is absolutely unchanged. In fact, notice how he states it here in verse 26. You may change the creation like a man would change his clothes. He put on a new... The word vesture here in this verse speaks of his apparel. God may take off one cloak and put on another. He has made creation, as it were, as his garment, and he can change his garment... But He is the same. So creation, the heavens and the earth may pass away. And God create new heavens and a new earth. But the God who created never changes one iota. That's an amazing thing to think about. That this universe may well pass away. It is running down. We call it the second law of thermodynamics. Entropy increase. Things at my house don't fall together, they fall apart. I don't know how it works at your house. <laughs> my car is running out, you know, the more miles it's got on it, the more it's wearing out. Things don't wear together, they wear out, right? So it is with the universe, that the entire universe is running down, it is decaying. The maker of the universe is absolutely unchanged. So when, so as we read this, the... Uh, the promise is concluding here in verse 28 is the children of thy servant shall continue. They're not going to die because their God is unchangeable. His promise is unchangeable. His word is immutable. Therefore, the life that he gives, the life that he promises is to be theirs and they can bank their soul upon it. Oh, well, I feel like I've just run through this tonight. Any, uh, just, just consider... How the word, go to Hebrews 1. I can't stand it. Got to have you go there. Take a look at it. You knew it was coming. Hebrews 1. In this first chapter of Hebrews, remember that the writer of Hebrews is contrasting Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, with the angels. That he's better than the angels. He's more better, as we southerners say. He's more excellent. He has a more excellent name than the angels, he states. In verse 4, he's higher than the angels. The angels, in verse 6, were commanded to worship him. 
Now, if Jesus is not God, then we are committing idolatry when we worship Him. Aren't we? In fact, didn't when Satan came along and told Jesus, if you just bow down and worship me, all this can be yours, what did Jesus say? It is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. Is that right? Any, to worship any other being would be idolatry, because you're worshiping the creature rather than the Creator. Is that true? Notice that the angels of God are commanded to worship Him, to worship the Son. Either we are a bunch of blasphemers and idolaters because we do worship Jesus, don't we? We worship Him as God. And we're either idolaters or we are in the will of God. And Jesus in John 5 says, It is the will of the Father that all men honor the Son as they honor the Father. That they would ascribe the same worship and glory to Him that they would to the Father. He's either God or He's the biggest liar and imposter that's ever ever hit this planet. That's your choice, really. But here in Hebrews, back back to the, back to business. Hebrews one verse six. Look at verse six carefully. And again, when He, that is God, brings the first begotten into the world, just think about that. When God brings the first begotten into the world, that means. He wasn't here. You can't bring somebody to a place he's already at. He had to have come from somewhere else. Where'd he come from? Heaven. And by the way, that's what he told him over and over again. I'm not of the you're of the earth. I'm from heaven. The fact that he came into the earth indicates he's not one of us. He is an E.T. in every sense of the word. Extraterrestrial. He didn't come from here. He came from heaven. But He became one of us. And over here in chapter 10, would you turn there? Hebrews 10, verse 5. Wherefore, when He cometh into the world. There it is again. He's not of us. He didn't originate here. He may have appeared in a manger in Bethlehem, but remember the prophecy, the law of this one's going to be born in Bethlehem. His goings forth have been from everlasting. He may have made His earthly appearance in a manger in Bethlehem, but He didn't start there. He came from somewhere else. He came into the earth and took upon a body, as He indicates here, in verse 5. In other words, he existed long before he made his appearance in this earth. John the Baptist realized that. His disciples came to him and said, John, why is this dude getting all the disciples? I mean, you started this thing. You baptized him. He didn't baptize you. You baptized him, and yet all men are going to him. You know, you know what I'm talking about? You know what John said? He may have come after me, but he's preferred before me because he was before me. 
He may have made an appearance after John, but he was here long before John. He was here in the days of the prophets because Peter will write that it was the Spirit of Christ who was in them, speaking ahead of times of the sufferings of Christ. The Spirit of Christ was in those Old Testament prophets prophesying about His sufferings that were to come. He was here before Moses. In 1 Corinthians 10, they disobeyed God. They disobeyed that rock. You remember? That rock was Christ and the rock was Christ? Yeah. That's what it says. He was here before Abraham. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced in it. He was here before creation. Because in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. We're dealing with someone completely in another class from us. The eternal God, the unchangeable one, Jehovah, who has become one of us, took upon our flesh, our nature, for suffering and death that we might be saved. As Wesley put it, that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me. That's who our Savior is. That's why He came. Born to die. Born to take our place. An amazing thought. Well, you get a chance, take your time, go back through Psalm 102. Let these things sink in. Isn't it interesting? Of all places, we wouldn't have expected... I didn't even... I got you to Hebrews 1. Didn't, didn't point out the quote. But if we just read a little further down Hebrews 1, you'll find these words right there in Psalm 102 quoted and applied to Jesus Christ. He's the one who's going to end the captivity. He's the one who's going to bring His people out of the shadow of death. Let us spend some time praying to the God who hears, the God who inclines His ears towards the cry of His people. What encouragement we have to pray.